Vision, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful signs into your brain. I'm Calvin Ng and on this edition we'll feature exciting mathematics, hot leaves and body swapping. But first up, Monica Sharma and I have the news. Neuroscientists in Sweden this week announced that they've succeeded in creating the illusion of body swapping. In one experiment, researchers at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm fitted the head of a mannequin with two cameras connected to two small screens in front of the subject's eyes. When the mannequin and the subject's heads were tilted downwards, the subject saw the dummy's body where they would normally see their own. The scientists then simultaneously touched the stomachs of both the mannequin and the subject, and the subject saw the mannequin's stomach being touched while feeling the sensation on their own midriff. After about two minutes, the subject developed a strong sense that the mannequin's body was their own. In another experiment, the scientists mounted the camera onto a second person's head, and when the two people shaked each other's hands, the subject perceived the camera wearer's body as their own, giving the impression of shaking their hands with themselves. The researchers say this shows just how easy it is to change the brain's perception of the physical self. It's been suggested that the research could be helpful in stroke rehabilitation and in dealing with psychological body image disturbances such as anorexia. Meanwhile, researchers in Israel developed a computer program that can enhance the photos of people's faces by making them more attractive. Dubbed the beauty machine, the software manipulates portrait photos using mathematical models based on the innate preferences that studies show we have for human faces. The researchers say the technology could become a product, for example, where people can upload the photos onto the web and have them enhanced. It's probably all great if you don't ever expect that person who's seen your photo to meet you in person. It remains to be seen whether people would take the enhanced photo to plastic surgeons and say, please, make me look like this. How fickle is the human mind? Also fickle is the human heart, but not according to the most recent study, which claims that you can reduce the damage done by a major heart attack by having a series of mini heart attacks. Apparently, by briefly stopping the blood flow and then restoring it, a chemical, nitrolinolic acid, is released, which is a key molecule in a supposed evolutionary protective mechanism against heart attacks. The molecule is thought to affect the mitochondria, or energy powerhouse, of the cells in a positive way, switching on a safety valve that in turn reduces damage caused by more serious and prolonged vessel blockage. And interestingly, olive oil has been found to produce this nitrolinoleic acid, which in my opinion is preferable over inducing a number of mini heart attacks. I knew there was something in that Mediterranean diet.
Leaves provide us with air, with food, and with water. Dr. Andy Lee from the Department of Environmental Sciences at the University of Technology talks to Ian Wolfe about her research into the connection between the shape of leaves and how they handle heat in different climates, and what happens when the climate changes. I'm Andrea Lee, Andy, at the Department of Environmental Sciences at UTS. And Andy, you're studying leaves. Yeah, leaves are the thing I'm interested in because they're the workhorses of plants. Pretty much um, leaves are responsible for most of the terrestrial primary productivity that we have and therefore keep us all alive. And as people will be aware, they have a pretty important role in cycling carbon and water in the natural ecosystems. And there's been lots of interest for decades really about why leaves should be different sizes in different environments. And Theophrastus back in 300 and something BC was probably the first one on record to have noticed that leaves have different sizes and shapes in different environments. It wasn't until later that a lot of really good theoretical work was done looking at the relationship between uh, leaf size and temperature. So there's a lot of good physical theory out there based on on the boundary layer effectively. A larger leaf is going to have a thicker boundary layer and therefore potentially a slower convection or or heat loss. For those who aren't sure, the boundary layer on a leaf, what would that be? In layperson's terms, which are my terms, is a little envelope of atmosphere that lies around the leaf surface. And in that atmosphere or that, that air, the wind speed is different relative to the turbulent air beyond. Now, boundary layers, if you want to get more complicated, can be turbulent turbulent or laminar, but effectively within this little pocket of air, the convection of heat to and from a surface is going to be different. And so if you have a larger leaf with a thicker boundary layer in a desert, for example, then it's going to take a longer time to lose heat than a smaller leaf. That's broadly speaking the theory. So I guess what interested me was this theory was pretty sound, but there hadn't been a lot of empirical work done. So we didn't really know what real leaves were doing in the environment. And and what I think a lot of people forget is that leaves lose heat also by latent heat loss through their stomata. So just like humans, they lose heat effectively by sweating as water vapour leaves the leaf through the stomata. Now, stomata are able to be opened and closed. And in an environment where leaves don't have a lot of soil water, they can close their stomata to stop them losing too much water out of their leaves. So the stomata are like the little pores? Yep, they're the, the little holes, on the un- generally on the underside of the leaf. Unlike a normal pore, which is just a hole, stomata can be regulated to open or close. So higher plants, if you like, or more recently evolved plants, have, have stomata in their outer layers. So if a leaf in a desert closes it, its stomata can't lose heat via latent heat loss, via transpiration through the stomata. So it's likely to get quite hot if it isn't able to lose heat via convection or other other means. So lots of leaves have reflective surfaces, often achieved by white hairs that reflect the sun. And they also are quite often steeply angled in uh, places of high irradiance like alpine environments and deserts. So it's very difficult to, in fact, extract just the influence of size alone 
on heat loss, but that's what I'm trying to do. How are you looking at the leaves to find out what's going on? In the past, I have been mostly using infrared imagery, which gives a really nice profile of of the temperature distribution across the leaf. So you don't just get how hot is that leaf, which is what a lot of older methods have used before infrared was really widely used. We used thermocouples, little wires that you stick on the back of the leaf, and they interfere with the boundary layer and they just give a point reading. So they're not ideal, although they're very quick and easy to use. But infrared imagery, uh, if you're lucky enough to have access to a thermal camera, which I was for a while, gives us a really nice profile. So you can look at the average temperature across a leaf. So what I found is that if you look at a temperature taken by a thermocouple on a small leaf, it might often be the same average temperature that you would read using thermal imagery. But if you're looking at a bigger leaf, it might have a temperature distribution across it and I've seen them up to you know, over 10 degrees distribution temperature range across the leaf surface, which is a really large amount in terms of biology. And a thermocouple, of course, wouldn't be able to tell us that because it might be on the really cold part or really hot part of that leaf. So one thing that I've found is that, that the temperature range across a leaf is um, definitely does increase with size, but it doesn't necessarily follow traditional physics according to a leaf as it would be a flat plate. Temperature distribution varies a lot depending on whether the leaf is undulating, whether the stomata are open in some parts of leaf and closed in other parts of the leaf, and where the water lies along the leaf. For example, leaves have veins in them which um, carry the water and those veins decrease in size uh, in sort of the outer areas of the leaf but it's not a uniform distribution. So temperature can be distributed or heat can be distributed across a leaf in a very different way according to a whole lot of different reasons. So that's why infrared imagery gives us a really nice picture of what's going on. I'm finding that the range of temperatures across a leaf increases with leaf size Mm -hmm. and the difference between leaf temperature and ambient temperature increases also with leaf size. So if we look at an average temperature or a maximum temperature on a leaf, it's much higher on a hot day, it's much higher than ambient than on a large leaf than it is on a small leaf. And at the moment, my research is going to start looking at why that might be. Mm-hmm. And I've got a few ideas. And one of those is that, that it's possible that well, that all leaves are closing their stomata on really hot days and so aren't able to cool by latent heat loss. And I'm also finding that larger leaves cool more slowly, that is they have a longer time constant for cooling than small leaves. Yeah, that's that's where I'm at the moment. We're also looking at leaf thickness, but that's another story altogether. And so will these findings be used, do you think, in agriculture and horticulture? I think ultimately, yes, and already people are using infrared imagery in crop science. Basically, if an infrared image of a canopy of of grapevines, for example, finds that leaves are particularly hot or hot relative to other plants, then they could that the people who own the vineyards or wheat fields or whatever it is can make an estimate about whether or not that plant is stressed, whether it is drought stressed or heat stressed or both, and they often come hand in hand. So in agriculture, this sort of information and and really pinning down which leaves are better and which are worse in these hot temperatures is helpful. But I'm also interested in looking at how native Australian plant species are going to cope 
in and changing climate. And it's not just the average temperature that's going to change. It's also predicted that there will be a higher incidence of extreme temperature spikes. So that's your heat wave, if you like, that not only will there be more of them, but they're also projected to be greater or higher. And this is something that if I'm interested to look at which leaves out there of which species are likely to fare well and which are likely to not fare well because with leaves suffering extreme temperature events it's often not a single kill event it's often um, cumulative so it's not just one one event but a certain number within a certain space of time of a certain magnitude could kill a plant so this has implications for which species might die and therefore which might also dominate. And, and does this mean that our invasive species, for example, might have a toehold or will they just not be able to cope with these extreme temperature spikes? So that's where it's, it's heading. So what do you think is the next challenge for you with this? Oh, the next challenge is... Uh, Oh, there's lots of reasons, lots of challenges. At, at a scientific or a research level, extracting the difference between convective heat and transpirational heat losses is, is a curly one, and this is why this topic has been avoided by researchers for decades. And I've been told that I'm slightly mad for trying, but nevertheless, I'm passionate, so I'll give it a go. Well, Andy Lee, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Dr. Andy Lee looking at how leaves handle heat in a warming world. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Up next, we have Mark West talking to two old friends, Seamus McAllister and Marcus Finlay, about making maths exciting for children. We all worked together at Questacon and travelled Australia with various programs communicating science in cities and in outback areas. Jamos and Marcus are both keynote speakers at the Mathematical Association of Victoria's 2008 annual conference. Jamos works with the 10X Math Squad, which is based at Questacon, the National Science and Technology Centre in Canberra, and has travelled to almost every part of Australia that you could think of communicating mathematics. Marcus is now a primary school teacher in Melbourne, Victoria, and has a particularly unique view on the communication of science and of mathematics. I caught them for a chat before they went off to the conference dinner. Hello, Jamos. How are you? I'm going really well. I'm uh, at the MAV 2008, which is the Maths Association of Victoria uh, annual conference for 2008, where it's possibly the largest congregation of math teachers uh, in Australia that we have every year. And you were giving a keynote address at this conference? I did give a keynote address at uh, this conference, all about the, the nature of maths, because I mean, there's a difference between maths and maths lessons and a difference between uh, loving maths and teaching maths. And if you can imagine having endless, uh, endless sheets of arithmetic to mark, you could possibly and quite easily wind up not entirely loving maths like you used to. So I was there to try and polish people's appreciation of what maths is. To really be a, a wonderful teacher of maths, it, it helps. It helps enormously to love the maths that you're teaching. But I mean, it's the true of any subjects, from, from maths to media studies to metalwork to Mondays. The, the teacher's appreciation of the subject will 
directly affect the students' appreciation of the subject. And why do you think maths needs such a particular focus? You don't, you don't really need people, uh, metalwork promoters touring Australia, to convince people to do metalwork, do you? Maths has got a bad public image. Ultimately, it's because maths is so powerful. And if you, if you forget what maths is, and if you make the association of maths being the numbers and maths being arithmetic, and then you lose what what math is and what it can do for you and what it can do for people and what it can do for humans in general. And that's why, because it's so easy to lose track and lose sight of what math is and how much power it has. And this is, this is your job. As a bit of background, you work with Questacon in, in Canberra, the National Science and Technology Centre, travelling uh, Australia. I do indeed. I work for uh, the Australian Government. I work for the uh, National Science and Technology Centre in the Tenex Questacon mascot. It's a small yet dedicated crack troop of troops who <laughs> had travelled the country spreading the good word of math. What, what's been the most challenging area you've been to in terms of communicating maths? Have you ever got a really horrible audience? I think that uh, almost every teacher around the world would appreciate that students in year eight, year nine, they are a particularly horrible audience because they're they're going through a lot of changes uh, if neurologists are to believe that puberty is inflicting on their brain. So they're, they're not a particularly fun audience. But that's not to say that they don't uh, appreciate what you're doing. It's just maybe they're hesitant to let you uh, realise that they appreciate what they're doing. So on occasion that can be a little daunting. Do you, do you have any different tactics for talking to country kids over city kids? You don't talk about counting cows as opposed to counting <laughs> dollars or something, do you? Um, no. I, what I've found in general, and this is a very, very, very large tar brush that I'd be using, is that country kids in general seem to be more comfortable with using maths than city kids. I'm not entirely certain why that is, um, and it's pretty anecdotal evidence. I don't have any hard facts to, to back up that statement, but it seems that way. I suspect it's because they overtly encounter maths more at home than your average city kid. So it's a bit more real for them. And what was the vibe like at the conferences, at this Victorian maths conference? Anything in particular you remember? Well, I'm only halfway through it at the moment. And, oh, okay. uh, it's interesting. There's, what, 400 different sessions that uh, the two and a half thousand attendants uh, can go to. Uh, it's, it's huge. And everyone, two and a half thousand Everyone people. here is also a, a uh, maths teacher of some description. Some, they have some interest in communicating maths across to, to people. Is, it, is there any maths teaching actually going on in Australia at the moment, if there are 2,500 maths teachers in Victoria? <laughs> I think it's the, maybe the most enthusiastic or the highest flying teachers that are here. And how did your, how did your talk go? Uh, I'm my own harshest critic, and I believe I got the point that I wanted to get across, that maths isn't about numbers, that you need to play with maths to, and you need to love maths and, uh, in order to teach it. But I'm a tad biased. What I can do is I can offer someone else's opinion. Okay. Right beside me, I have a, a math teacher from Victoria. He's a, he's a wonderful man. He's got an even deeper voice than I do. His name is Marcus Finlay, and here he is. 
Yeah, hello. Hello, Marcus, my deep-voiced friend. How are you? Well, thank you, Mark. And yourself? I'm all right. How's the conference? What are you presenting on? My session is called Beating the Groan. And what? You know, what? When, when you say, we're going to do math now, all the kids go, oh. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's my topic, beating, beating that. Turning that to grins, turning groans to grins. What what tactics do you have to turn groans to grins? Probably the main point of my session is that math needs to be social. A lot of, a lot of teachers say, open your textbooks, two page, five, exercises one through eight. But it needs to be social. The kids need to be able to discuss what they're doing with each other and talking about problems. And it's very, very important. What? Not only for them to, like, you know, justify their reasoning, and which helps solidify their ideas, but also to get other ideas from other kids that have sort of come to those conclusions earlier than they may have. I better put you back onto JMOS. I would like to say that uh, calculators can't do maths. If they could, they'd be called mathulators. Oh, they like can't that. do math. They calculate. There's a big, big difference. In in a sentence, describe the difference between calculation and mathematics. Calculations are the the spelling of maths, but maths is a story. Just as, you know, having the individual words, a cat sat on the mat, it's not necessarily the story unless it's the right way around, unless those words have meaning. That's exactly the same with maths. If I got you to answer the question, what's one plus one? Two. Yeah. Did you do maths or did you just remember the answer? I guess I just have memorised that answer, I guess. Yeah. So what's 10 plus 10? 20. Did you do maths or did you memorise the answer? Uh, that's also a memory. Okay. Uh, what's 100 plus 100? That's 200. Hey. Uh, still still memory? I'd, I'd say so, but I, but I see where you're what's, going. What's 84 plus 21? Uh, 105. Yeah. That took a little bit longer. Was that maths or was that memory? Well, it's not memory anymore. Is it? Is it calculation or is it maths? Well, I would say that it was still memory. Uh, what you've done is you've memorised some algorithm and you've gone, right, I know what I need to do in this situation. That bit, the calculation, was memory. You went through stuff. You processed stuff, but you went through it in a way that you know that is going to work. The bit of math that was there, though, was going, right, I've identified the problem. This is the way that I need to tackle the problem. And then the calculation takes over. Oh, I see. Okay. It's a very interesting way of looking at it. Well, math is very interesting. And the more you look at it, the more interesting it becomes. That was James McAllister and Marcus Finlay talking about how to make children excited about maths. And finally, Ian Wolf talks about the Australian Censorship Rally. The Australian Federal Government is going ahead with tests for compulsory internet censorship based on a secret blacklist that can be added to at any time. Documents recently released state that the testing is part of getting users to accept censorship. By taking part in the tests and by being able to add sites that they think should also be blocked, users are persuaded that censorship is normal. The New South Wales State Government has announced that the wireless laptops that high school children will receive from the Federal Government next year will be censored to stop all social networking sites, including MySpace and Facebook, not only at school, but also at home after school is over. The reasons given were that social networking sites are on the list of not-so-wholesome things that children shouldn't see. Obviously, the Department of Education has forgotten the lesson of the previous government's internet filter, 
it was broken within 45 minutes of being released by a 15-year-old boy. Activists will take to the streets around Australia to demonstrate against the government's internet censorship scheme on Saturday, December 13th. The protests are being coordinated through the website nocensorship.info. That's nocensorship.info. The Electronic Freedom Project, which describes itself as dedicated to protecting the freedoms of Australians online, is staging a protest at Sydney's Town Hall Square on the 13th of December, starting at 11am. Protests will also be held at Brisbane Square, Brisbane, at 11am, State Library Melbourne at 12pm, Parliament House Adelaide at 12pm, Stirling Gardens Perth at 12pm, and Parliament Lawns Hobart at 11am. The Electronic Freedom Project's state, the government plans to slow the internet by nearly 90% by opening every single exchange of information to look for unwanted and illegal content. Illegal internet content is so broadly defined at law that it covers everything from Facebook to MySpace to Wikipedia to YouTube. Protest is the most effective way for the general public to oppose this law, and our protests are designed to inform the general public and increase the opposition to the filter. We can stop this, their statement concludes, but we need your help. Internet political activists, Get Up, are raising funds to get a protest video ad shown on TV. Senator Stephen Conroy wants to censor the internet, the video says. You can help to stop him. The Electronic Freedom Project's website is nocensorship.info and you can read more about the Australian government's internet censorship plans on the bandthisurl.com, nocleanfeed.com and just follow the links on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, give us some feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praise, or if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Monica Sharma, Mark West, and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Calvin Ng, and join us inside your radio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Counting sheep when you're trying to sleep being fair when there's something to share being neat when you're folding a sheet that's mathematics when a ball bounces off of a wall when you cook from a recipe book when you know how much money you owe that's mathematics how much gold can you hold in an elephant's ear when it's noon on the moon then what time is it here if you could count for a year would you get to infinity or somewhere in that vicinity when you choose how much postage to use when you know what's the chance it will snow when you bet and you end up in debt Oh, try as you may You just can't get away from mathematics Andrew Weil 
smiles, gently smiles, does his thing, and voila, QED, we agree, and we all shout hurrah. As he confirms what Fermat jotted down in that margin, which could have used some enlarging. Tap your feet, keep in time to a beat of a song. While you're singing along, harmonize with the rest of the guys. Yes, try as you may, you just can't get away from mathematics.